Galatians chapter 2. Good to have everyone here this morning. Galatians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1. Then 14 years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. Something to keep in mind. A Gentile. And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run of run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Amen. I pray the Lord bless the reading of his word. Paul speaks in verse 1 of 14 years after. I was thinking about that this morning. It was 16 years ago this year that we first moved up to Coleman. And it doesn't seem like 16 years, but it's been 16 years since we came here. There are a lot of truths in this passage of Scripture that I so wish to share with you this morning that I believe will help us as a church in all aspects of our life, not only with fellowship and unity amongst one another as believers, but how we should treat and conduct ourselves with those that are of weaker faith, and even how we should respond to those who are false brethren, of which Paul speaks. As a matter of fact, false brethren gave Paul often trouble. Everywhere he went, he ran into false brethren. And he conducted himself in a rather wonderful way, which reflected not only his character as a Christian, but reflected also his love for the truth of God and for Christ, something which lacks much today in the ranks of those who profess to be believers in this day and age of schisms and divisions and fightings and quarrelings which seem to take place everywhere amongst those who profess to be Christians, which cast shame upon the gospel as well upon the church of Christ. I pray that we would never be guilty of that amongst ourselves, but we would, by God's grace, seek to uh, humble ourselves, submit ourselves not only to Christ, but to one another, and even to those who God has sovereignly and providentially put into our lives to be authority, as that of Paul, much of which is lacking in this day and age today. And so I want to look at a few things this morning which I pray will help us understand the events which take place in this second chapter. I want to look at a few things concerning the Apostle Paul which sometimes we might tend to overlook but I believe has great application for us to learn exactly why Paul acted the way he did and conducted himself the way he did and so we too might learn from him. It says in verse 1, words which we often overlook, said, Then fourteen years after, often we read such seemingly simple words as these in God's Word without 
giving them much thought to their significance. We just simply read past them. Sometimes when we read the scriptures, we think all these events happened in a short amount of time, that it just took a few weeks or months. Paul speaks of 14 years after. Now, I'm not going to debate whether it was after his first visit to Jerusalem or after his conversion, but 14 years Paul had been preaching the gospel amongst the Gentiles. And these words speak volumes not only of the faith of the Apostle Paul, but also to his character and conduct in his communicating to others that gospel which he preached among the Gentiles. Like I said, Paul preached 14 years amongst the Gentiles, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet it was not until, by revelation of God, verse 2, that Paul would return again unto Jerusalem to communicate to the Jewish brethren that gospel which he preached amongst the Gentiles. We need to take that into consideration when we consider Paul dealing with these different events in this passage of Scripture. Because these words, 14 years after, help us to understand much about the Apostle Paul and why he conducted himself the way that he did. The patience of the Apostle Paul in the work of the ministry Beloved, is a virtue which is much lacking in this present generation of impatient and over-eager believers who of themselves seek to make things happen, claiming it's all for the sake of the gospel. Now think about it. I'm getting ahead of myself, but let me lay this out before you. Think about this. Paul, by revelation of Jesus Christ, if you remember in the book of Acts, was called to preach to the Gentiles. And so for 14 years, Paul has known, he says in Romans chapter 16, that God uh, revealed to him, unto him things that were hidden since the foundations of the world. Paul had been given a commission by Christ himself to go preach the gospel. And yet Paul waits 14 years before going up to Jerusalem to communicate with the Jewish believing believers, the Judaizers, those Jews who believed in the gospel, that's why Galatians was written, he waits 14 years to go up to communicate to them this preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles, which was new to the Jews, not so much at this time in Galatians, but it was still unusual. And he does it even privily or privately to those of reputation. You see, I say that because many times we are in such a haste when it comes to the gospel. We lack the patience of waiting upon God. Many churches today, because the pews are empty and their haste to get them filled, will do anything to get people into the church. They'll appease their, uh, their curiosity. They'll try to appease their senses by offering them entertainment and enjoyment, something to allure them so that their churches might be full because they're impatient. The gospel is a labor. The working and preaching of the gospel is a labor. Our Lord said himself in Matthew, pray that the Lord of harvest send forth laborers. It's not an easy task. It's one that requires much grace, of course, 
but also much long-suffering and patience and definitely perseverance. And over my 40 years as being a Christian and a pastor, I myself have been guilty of trying to make things happen all in the name of the gospel rather than waiting patiently on God. I think we can learn from the Apostle Paul. He's been preaching 14 years to the Gentiles. And he only went up to Jerusalem after he got a revelation from God to go do so. Most men that was given that much insight and that's such a, such a great commission, would have out of pride and arrogance, he said, I'm going to go tell the brethren in Jerusalem exactly what God has shown me, what God has given me. You know, I believe we can all agree that pride enters into everything we do as Christians. Even our humility is filled with pride. Our prayers are prideful. Too often we seek our own, not the things of Christ. Pride taints and corrupts everything we do. I think we can learn from the Apostle Paul. He even said, the Apostle Paul in Hebrews 10, for he have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. After you've done, sounds almost like Paul, you have need of patience. Preach it for 14 years amongst the Gentiles, and I will tell you when you need to go to Jerusalem and communicate unto them this gospel. You preach it. After you've done that will, then I will give you the promise. Sounds almost like Paul, doesn't it? Our Lord himself said, In patience you possess your souls. We all know those verses in Habakkuk when he's waiting for the vision, chapter 2, waiting for God to answer him. And God tells him, says, it'll come, though it tarry, wait, be patient, wait for it. The just shall live by faith. In regards to the work of the ministry, in the regards of the gospel of Jesus Christ, brethren, there must always, in some sense, be a sense of urgency in everything we do. Whatever we do for God or the gospel, true, there, truly there must be a sense of urgency, yet this urgency must be tempered by our patiently waiting and trusting in the Lord. Are you following me? Never over-anxious over in trying to make something happen without waiting on the Lord. Wait on the Lord, the psalmist said. Be of good courage. You ever thought that it takes courage to wait on the Lord? It does. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thy heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Because if we don't, that same urgency simply becomes blind and fruitless zeal, which avails nothing. So in all our labors to serve God and in preaching of the gospel, let us learn from the Apostle Paul to be patient as well. It's a work of labor, a work of love. It takes time. And we must also remember it takes much more than simply passing out flyers, which is a good start, but it takes also a labor of love. I think that much of the gospel has been lost in this world of cybernet when everything is so easy to put on the Internet and so easy to put on the radio and everything else. In the older days, Christians had to go out on the streets and they had, to, they had to knock on doors and visit people. 
talk to them face to face. I think the church has fallen into the same error when it comes to communication. People communicate well with a computer. There's no challenge there, but talk to somebody face to face. I still believe that's the best way of presenting the gospel, even though I'm not saying the Internet cannot be used, radio cannot be used. I still say there's something to our personally witnessing face-to-face, sitting down and talking. Even scientists today say the world or this generation today has lost the art of communication. They don't know how to talk to one another. That's why when you nowadays when you go out to lunch, especially a lot of times I see it when I go out with my colleagues to work and there's 12 of us sitting at the table to have lunch, everybody's on their phone. Nobody's talking anymore. They don't know how to. I believe this has also got to the point to where it's corrupted many families. Wives and husbands don't know how to learn to don't know how to talk to each other, don't know how to talk to their children. That's another subject. But still, in everything we do for God, in every service we do for God, and especially in the gospel, beloved, we must temper our urgency, our fervency with patient waiting and trusting on the Lord. Such patience is also a divine virtue rarely found amongst young believers who have not yet learned its value and importance, which comes only by tribulations. Romans 5 says, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. Patience is, is rarely a virtue found in young believers. They, oh, they're, they're, they have this blind zeal. I remember when I was a young Christian, I just thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to go out and share the gospel. Everybody's going to believe me. Every time I tell them, they're going to believe me because this stuff is good. I mean, what I have is good. Who can't believe it? Who can't love it? And I'm going to go out there and the world's going to be converted just by me going out and telling them. Boy, was I met with a hard reality. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience. You see that? And patience experience. You see what comes out of patience? Experience. That's why younger Christians, you should pay heed to older Christians who've been in the battle a lot longer than you have, who've maybe seen things you haven't seen, who've learned experience by tribulation, because even though your knowledge might be, in your mind, well thought of, maybe it's not the right time for that. That's, that's lacking in many churches today, too. Young Christians not saved five, ten years. And speaking to Christians that's been saved 30 and 40 years and lived life close to God, they've suffered a lot of tribulations. And it's like that experience means nothing. No, it, it, patience works experience. And experience hope. And all this is illustrated and seen in Paul waiting 14 years before going up to Jerusalem yet not before a revelation from God. And his handling of Titus being a Greek, not being compelled to be circumcised. And also in his handling of the sinful, erring brethren. You see, Paul is not a novice any longer. Paul's been preaching for a while. And we see how tribulation worked patience in Paul, and by that patience, it worked experience. And by that experience, it worked hope that maketh not a shame. Paul said, maketh not a shame. For patience, which tribulation works, 
experience and hope are the fruits of that. And I say that with just this little note here, because we live in a day and age where knowledge is at our fingertips. I mean, more so than ever before. Before, when they had printers and we only had books, there was a lot of books, but now there's much more. You can get on the Internet. You can listen to any sermon you want. You can download any book you want. You can read anything you want on God. And young believers believe if they've read the book, they're, an ex they're experienced, they're, they're, they have the authority in this subject, and they talk and they live like they've experienced it. This is why, even though I don't agree with everything that he wrote, there was someone who wrote a book on spiritual, the spiritual man, Watchman Nee. I don't agree with everything he said. Before writing that book, he confessed he didn't want to write it because he knew that a lot of professing believers would read it and try to live in the light of it without ever experiencing it. And we have a lot of young Christians like that today. Knowledge puffeth up. So we need to be careful of those things. That why we can, that's why we can learn from the Apostle Paul. Okay, After 14 years, he went up to Jerusalem. I want you to look at verse 3. He said, But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, and that because the false brethren, unawares, brought in who came in privily to spite our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us in, into bondage. Now you'll notice in verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul states clearly, I took Titus with me. Now Paul knowing Titus was a Greek, a true believer, but a Greek, not yet circumcised, Paul says, Titus, you're going with me up to see these Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And I'm going to tell them about the gospel that I've been preaching to the Gentiles. But I'm bringing you for this sole purpose, to prove that circumcision has nothing to do with the gospel. The law has nothing to do with the gospel anymore. It's a master that leadeth, but he purposely brings a Greek amongst the Jewish believers. Now think about that. That's a bold, that's a bold move by Paul. And I'm sure there's some brethren, we don't have any evidence of that, but knowing the human heart, I'm sure there was some brethren was questioning Paul's decision on that. You sure you want to take Titus? He's not circumcised. You're trying to tell them about the gospel, and you're going amongst the Jews. And the church at Galatia was, was terrorized by Judaizers, the false brethren who came in to try to tell them, no, you have to keep the law as well as believe in Christ. Paul, are you looking for a fight? Don't ever underestimate decisions that pastors or elders in a church might feel led to make regards to church, because you might not know everything that's behind that. And I'll get at that towards the close of it. That's a very sensitive subject in this day and age of individualism. Uh, everybody wants to make decisions in the church. Nobody wants the, uh, the responsibility, though. And I'll get into that later, but... I've come from churches where everybody wanted to say so, but nobody wanted the responsibility. Well, if you want to say so, why don't you pray about being a deacon or an elder? Oh, no, no, that's not for me. But I surely want something to say. It doesn't work that way. As hopefully we'll see later, God appoints elders and pastors in the church to lead. That's why, again, I get ahead of myself. That's why the exhortation to obey and submit to what? To their authority. Why? Because God put them there. 
Are they infallible? No. But God put them there. Lacking much today in this day and age of individualism that people are doing. But here we see Paul takes Titus, who's Greek, who's not circumcised, but something happens in verse 3. But neither Titus, who was with me being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. To some, this seems to be a contradiction of Paul's convictions. Yet nothing could be farther from the truth. Because if you look back with me in Acts chapter 16 regarding another situation concerning a Greek, Acts chapter, or a Gentile, Acts chapter 16, namely Timothy. Now, watch what happens here in the book of Acts. Now, two chapters earlier is when Paul declares, okay, I'm leaving now the Jews, I'm going to the Gentiles, him and Barnabas. So the church is yet still in its infancy. Keep that in mind. Okay? Acts chapter 16. Then came he to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, or Timothy, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewish and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him, he took Paul, Timothy with him, and took and circumcised him, because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they, not, for they all knew his father was a Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for the keep <clears throat> that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. Looks like a contradiction back in Acts chapter 16. Paul says, no, Timothy, you need to get circumcised because there's Jews there. Yet now in Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, nope, ain't happened. Ah, contradiction. Was it? The situation and circumstances surrounding these two events are very different from one another. And they play a vital role in Paul's handling of them both, something we can both learn. First and foremost, with Timothy in the book of Acts, the church of God was yet in her infancy. She had just begun, the book of Acts. And that the gospel would now be preached among the Gentiles, yet new and very unfamiliar to many believing Jews. Paul, just two chapters earlier, had said, okay, I'm leaving, I'm going to the Gentiles. So it's a new thing for everybody in the book of Acts, chapter 16. It's a new thing. And so Paul is being cautious about being able to present unto them this divine truth without causing disturbance and divisions. Paul was, in Acts chapter 16, being cautious of the weaker brethren, the, the yet infant church. And they were amongst believers, Jews that were true believers. No mention, I'll see in a few minutes, of false brethren. So Paul says, no, let us have you circumcised, okay? Let us have you circumcised. So that we might not cause any divisions or schisms. This is yet a new thing. Yet with Titus, in Galatians chapter 2, it's been at least 14 years. The gospel of Jesus Christ had been preached faithfully amongst the Gentiles for 14 years. As a matter of fact, this is why Paul writes this epistle to the Galatians, because there was a confusion with the Judaizers and the believers. They're trying to mix the law in with the gospel. So it's now familiar. It's been 14 years. Are you following Paul here? Not all things are expedient. Here's experience. 
Oh, preacher, we've never done it that way. Well, maybe it's time we do. Oh, preacher, I don't feel the same way to be led that way. Well, maybe we should. Are you following? Most people say Paul contradicted himself. Paul did not contradict himself. Paul was acting in both situations. He's conducting himself as a true believer with wisdom and experience. Here, Paul applies experience in chapter 2 of Galatians. In Acts, Paul and Timothy were amongst believing Jews, like I said, newly converted, who would have been greatly confused and troubled at this new turning unto the Gentiles. So the Apostle Paul exercises discretion and prudence. No, Timothy, let's go ahead and get you circumcised. We know it's, you know, you, it, that has nothing, the law has nothing to do with the gospel and everything else we can, but it's still something new. Let's, let's use, isn't that amazing when you think about that? Because now Paul boldly defends that. In this whole case here in chapter 2, he talks about the law does not justify, but Jesus Christ does. So Paul boldly defends that. He boldly defends Titus and says, no, this is why I brought him. He brought him to the fight, so to say. He said, no, he's my example. He's a Gentile. Nothing to do with it. It reminds me of the verse where Paul said, and the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God preadventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Isn't that amazing? I thought about this this last week. Amazing phrase, to give repentance to what? To salvation? No. Repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. A repentance of blowing a lie not knowing the truth, a repentance to acknowledging the truth. You see, in everything we do, we seek not only that the truth and faith be defended, but also we do that in love for the brethren and neighbors. You see, so many Christians seek their own, not the benefit and well-being of others. And, and that's a sad thing. Paul knew how to seek the well-being of others without compromising or injuring the faith. That's a divine balance that only experience can teach a mature believer. A young Christian lacks that divine balance. He doesn't understand that. Oh, it's truth. It's got to be. And he doesn't understand that divine balance. Paul shows that. With Titus, there were, after 14 years of preaching, the gospel amongst the Gentiles, there were now false brethren brought in unawares. The situation has changed. The gospel's been established amongst the Gentiles. Now false brethren have come in unawares to privily spy out their liberty which they had in Christ Jesus, that they might bring them into bondage, bondage of the law. Things had now changed. So Paul now begins to declare this. You see the wisdom and grace Paul has? in these things. You see, beloved, sometimes we forget that God has a divine order to things in his church. This generation of so-called churches or Christians have confused it, perverted it. There's no more divine order in a lot of churches. Everybody just simply does what they want to do, like in the book of Judges. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. It's not how God intended that in his church. God has divinely and sovereignly ordained his church to be run specifically in accordance to his word. We've turned from that. I 
There's another truth which we see within the events of Paul that we must humbly consider, one which is vital for the people of God to keep in mind, but one, like I said earlier, is sensitive in this generation of individualism. Especially now where so many people say, I don't need a church, I can worship at home, I don't need a pastor, I can, I can teach myself. And I don't need a pastor. I got all these books. I got John Flavel and John Brown, and I got uh, George Whitfield and Charles Spurgeon, and I've read the books, man. You don't understand. I've read the books. And it might even be so. Listen to me carefully. It might even be so that, in many ways, because of such reading and knowledge they've obtained, that in some way they kind of possess a knowledge in those things that is greater than the knowledge of the man God has ordained to be in their lives to be an authority. That's a good possibility. Yet, again, knowledge puffeth up. Even Proverbs talks about a wisdom that's needed to properly use knowledge. You see, you can learn knowledge, but wisdom cometh from the Lord. How to apply that knowledge is wisdom which comes from God. How does one get those wisdom? Get that wisdom? Well, first of all, by divine appointment, but also by tribulation, by experience, by hope, by things that God is. You see, that's why we need to be careful with that. What what else can we learn there? Well, namely, that it was the Apostle Paul who took the lead in all these events. The Apostle Paul took lead in this. Now, it says Barnabas he took with him, which means they were of one mind. Paul didn't do this individually. Paul and Barnabas were agreed. Paul's not trying to be a dictator because Paul's going up to Jerusalem to seek, actually to seek the approval of the brethren. So he's not being a dictator, but he's taking the role of a leader. He's leading. You need to keep that in mind as we look at Paul here. He went up with Barnabas, and he went up for a certain reason. He wanted to communicate this gospel he preached on the Gentiles privately, under those of reputation. So Paul's leading in that. Paul led also in the not giving place by subjection to the false brethren. And to the rebuking of Peter. In all three of these situations, Paul does what he's divinely appointed to do. He takes the lead. That's strange and foreign, or a foreign concept in a lot of churches. Pastors don't lead anymore. The deacon board does. Or other people do. Most people today say, Preacher, you just, and believe me, I just came from a church earlier. That's all they wanted. You just preach on Sundays a sermon. Let us take care of all the things in the church. We'll tell you how the church needs to be led and which direction we need to go. You just, you just preach. No, Paul said, no, there's much more to that than just preaching. Paul led in all these events. In all these things, the Apostle Paul exercised his divine calling as overseer, which Paul called the elders of Ephesus. Peter calls them as well, bishops. Taking oversight is another form of wording that Paul describes as elders, pastors. You take oversight. In other words, you keep an eye on them. You watch over them. You protect them. You instruct them. Watching for their souls is what he says in Hebrews, as he must give an account. You see, uh, it's not those who want to always have the say-so that must one day give an account to God 
for what's done in the church or amongst God's people, but it's the pastors. Oh, but I don't want that accountability. Well, sure, acts like it when you try to run things in the church. And again, I'm not saying Paul's been a dictator. And I know this office has been abused many times. People's, I can hear the thoughts now of people. If I, if I had a room full of 100 people that's been in church for a long time, well, you don't understand how often I've been offended and hurt at church, how often the preacher's fallen into sin. I know that. That doesn't change God's way of doing things. It doesn't. It's still God's way of doing things. The church has departed from that in this day and age. And that's sad. Because I believe in many ways that's weakened the church. Look at Acts chapter 20. We can learn from the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 20. Listen to Paul's exhortation to the elders at Ephesus. Acts chapter 20 verse 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves. It's amazing how he says you take heed unto yourself first. And to all the flock. Over the which the Holy Ghost had made you overseers bishops, instructors, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. That's what you're supposed to be. An overseer. Take heed to yourself and all that to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. It's God's people, God's church, not theirs. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, watch. Who's he telling that? Who's this, who's this charge going towards? The elder? Watch. You watch. It's your job as an elder to watch. Watch for what? Watch for these grievous wolves. That they will not affect the church or the flock. As a shepherd and a sheepdog. More like a pastor being a sheepdog than a shepherd. You watch them wolves. You watch and be careful that nobody enters in amongst them so that they might harm the flock. That's your job to watch. Keep an eye on them. Because I'm going to hold you responsible for that. It's a great responsibility. Nobody wants to take accountability for that. But everybody wants to lead. Therefore, watch and remember that by the, great, by the space of three years, I cease not to warn every one of you night and day with tears. Charges to the elders. For in feeding the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood, they must also take heed to themselves and to all the flock, Paul says. And that also against grievous wolves who will attempt to enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Preacher, I don't need anybody to give me spiritual instruction. Have you seen my library? <laughs> I don't need a church. I don't need Christian fellowship. I don't need a pastor. I can live my Christian life well by myself. I don't need any of that. Not according to God's word. I know that's foreign to this generation of self-seeking, self-seeking uh, Christians who feel they're independent of anybody and everything. But that's God's way of doing it. 
This charge wasn't given to everyone. He was given to the elders. You watch. And in return, as the pastor does that, as he watches, he feeds, he protects, he instructs, he leads. In return, Hebrews 13 says the flock is to obey and submit themselves to their authority. Now, the words obey and submit immediately mean to authority. Somebody's in authority. It's obey and submit. And Paul says do that so they might do it happily so that it's not against you. And why is that? It's oftentimes an uncomfortable subject for a pastor to his own church, but why is that? Well, because there's so many responsibilities and accountabilities that weighs on him. When you make it hard for him, it makes it even harder for him. So he said it doesn't prosper you because you're hindering that which God has for you by making it hard for him to feed you, to watch over you. I've pastored churches to where we've had individuals, and every church has it, we've had individuals that opposes the pastors leading every step of the way. Always puts it in question. I'm not saying that he shouldn't be. That's why I believe elders is a good thing. Believe me, <laughs> I've come to recognize that. Elders is a good thing. That's why churches elect elders. They commit unto them the leading and guidance of the church, trusting in their spiritual discernment to do what is right, not only for the glory of God, but for the benefit of the church. So elders are given that authority and accountability by faith from the congregation. You lead us. You, you, you lead us. We trust in you. If you're going to preach the Word of God, if you're going to tell us what God says in His Word, if you're, if you're going to be the spiritual leaders, we will follow you. Now again, that doesn't mean blind following. And I know that's been abused in many churches. I recognize that. Still doesn't change God's divine order for the church. So that's why Paul takes the lead in this. I believe many churches are weak because the pastors become weak. I read just a few weeks ago, of course we hear this all the time, that this is probably in this day and age, in this generation, more pastors are quitting than ever before. And it's not because of what the world's doing, it's because of what's happening in the church. And what the biggest complaint was of these pastors quitting? No respect amongst believers. No respect. I believe that. And again, I don't want you to misunderstand this. I know many people have abused this authority. I know that. I realize that. And Paul's not trying to be a dictator, and that's not what the Scripture's saying either. Paul's leading, but he's doing it also with a spirit of meekness and humility. Look how he does privately with the, with the brethren of reputation. Look how he stands up for Titus. Look how he mildly but sternly rebukes Peter. Beloved, I believe we can all agree that we live in a generation where both the authority is lacking in churches and the submission and obeying is rejected. There's a, there's a problem on both sides of the fence. There's a problem in the pew and the problem in the pulpit. <laughs> like I said, everyone wants to say, but no one is willing to accept the responsibility. Pastors, dear beloved, are not only to feed the flock, but lead, and that by divine appointment, 
an example. And I emphasize that, divine appointment, an example. It never is a dictator. Elders are not supposed to be dictators. Not by constraint. And that divine balance is hard. I believe that's why Paul emphasizes that a pastor must not be a novice because they'll fall in condemnation of the devil. What's the devil work on? Well, pride. Pride. Paul did right in the book of Acts with Timothy. He did right. He did right in the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, he acted like an experienced pastor. And he did it with such character and conduct that he convinced the pillars in Jerusalem. He was able to rebuke Peter, even Barnabas, and some of the other disciples that had done wrongfully, sinfully. He rebuked them in such a way that they repented. Everything that Paul did was right. You know why? Because he knew and had that divine balance of being able to say, I am nobody. I'm the least of all apostles. I'm the least of all saints. Yet God has given me the authority to be able to lead and guide and direct. You don't so much respect the person as you do the position. Not saying that you shouldn't respect the person. I believe a lot of that is lacking in today's church, and that's why we have so many problems, so many divisions in the church today. Pastors are not leading. They're being led. We have a bunch of coward pastors who will not stand up but allow themselves to be led by the deacon boards and by the church. They do not take the initiative to lead. We need elders and pastors who are divinely appointed and lead by that divine appointment and by example to others. And we need a church that's willing to say, you know what, if we trust you to preach to us the word of God, we certainly better trust you in leading us. Otherwise, we shouldn't trust you in the pulpit. Doesn't, it makes sense, doesn't it? If you're gonna, if you're gonna declare unto us the ways of God from the scriptures, you'd think God would give you at least a little bit of insight to lead the church. Right? You'd think. Yet, like we'll look at next week, Paul ran into a lot of false brothers. I, I wanted to spend time this morning on Paul's character and conduct in this 14 years and, uh, I wanted to understand why Paul conducted himself the way he did because Paul was no longer a novice. He was no longer a new beginner. Paul now was an experienced leader of the church. And he recognized that there were other leaders as well. John, James, and Peter. And he, and he comes to them and he, and he submits that to them. He communicates to them. He does that because he's not a dictator. He, he, he shares that. He took Barnabas, which means he shared the accountability, the responsibility with him. Barnabas went with him. They were of agreement. So it's not a one-man show. Believe me, I pastored a church as only a single pastor for years, and I know the dangers of that. That's why even though we didn't have elders, we did have a group of men that I entrusted, brought into the inner circle, and we kind of made decisions amongst ourselves. Even though they weren't appointed elders, it was still, but I'm telling you, that's why the Lord brings men into the church to be the spiritual leaders in the church, to guide and direct the church. As they do that, the church, the people of God, are not forced to follow. They lovingly, willingly submit to their love, their care, and their authority. And that's what gives... It's basically the same principle as a father and mother. You know why your children obey you? 
You know why your wife loves you? Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Okay? She loves her husband because he loves her. She submits to her husband because Ephesians said they submit one to another. It's his love that soothes her. It's her, his love that compels her to submit to him. You see, you see, that's how it works in the church. God compare, Christ compares that to the church. That's how a church works. Should work. So I, I really believe that was important for our church in our beginning phases as we're seeking to grow and seeking God's guidance and maybe possibly another place to meet or whatever it might be as the Lord brings people into the church, that we would strive to be like unto that with Paul and like unto that in the, church, the, the, the Christians in the first church, that we would be willing to love one another as Christ loved us, but also at the same time to submit to one another. Pastors even required to submit as well, not only to God, but to submit to also other believers. It's, it's, it's a mutual thing. And mutual means both benefits from each other. That's how church works together. Amen? May the Lord give us grace to follow the Apostle Paul from his example so that we might be a church that truly glorifies Christ and we can be more effective in spreading the gospel. Amen? May the Lord... Grant us much grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for how it so clearly details unto us, Lord, what your divine purpose and will is. And we pray that, Father, Lord, you'd help us here at Reformed Baptist Church to heed and to listen to thy word. We pray that, Lord, you'd help us all to be humble before God and one another, to exalt one another above ourselves, to esteem others better than ourselves. Help us, dear God, we pray that we'd have the same mindset of Paul, that though he was an apostle and was revealed wonderful things that no man had ever seen before, he said himself that he was the least of all saints and the least of all apostles. Help us, Lord God, to maintain that spirit of humility. Yet, Lord, help us to have that also that divine balance of being able to be contend for the faith, which was once given unto the saints, while we seek to love and seek the well-being of one another. As believers, give us, grant us this divine balance, we pray. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.